0: Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38, Jesus, continuing his sermon, says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. In Christ's Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has declared, remember that true righteousness isn't something that's simply external. It's not just simply something on the outside that we do in order to have a right relationship with God. It's someone who we are on the inside, in the inside of our heart. Jesus has gone to great lengths to expose the meaning and the danger of sin, But also, remember, Jesus has come, not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. The law revealed the minimum expectations of external compliance in religious and social interactions, but Jesus reminds his listeners that God cares about your heart. And because he cares about your heart, Jesus has spoken about anger in the heart in verses 21 through 26. Lust in the heart in verses 27 through 32. Deception in the heart in verses 33 through 37. And now Jesus is going to deal with the issue of retaliation in verses 38 through 48. The law of Moses required that people not take the law into their own hands. The law of Moses made a provision that the corporate community could try individuals and that individuals didn't have to seek revenge against an enemy we begin to understand that we live in a fallen world. We understand that the kingdom that Jesus is talking about is very, very different from the kingdom in which you live in, this world in which you live in. So what do you do? Because you live in a broken world where people don't recognize Christ's purity, humility, or generosity? How do we deal with men and women who hold on to selfishness and promote violence? How does Jesus deal with the problem? Well, he asks citizens in his kingdom to be willing to suffer loss Rather than cause other people to suffer loss. And I want you to think about that for just a moment. I want you to think about how radical that concept is. Jesus has already talked about a radical purity, a radical humility. He's going to talk about a radical generosity. But imagine living in a world where two options are before you you take the loss. Or somebody else takes the loss. And this is a radical, powerful point. Because Jesus is inviting the citizens of heaven to take the loss. Remember, Jesus is dealing in the realm of private offenses. And his statements don't prohibit or exclude civil government or civil courts or the power to accuse and convict people of crimes. That's not what's happening in this passage. Not long ago, the President of the United States made this unfounded, tragic comment. He said, quote, Which passage of scripture should guide our public policy? Should we go with Leviticus, which suggests slavery is okay? And that eating shellfish is an abomination. Or do we go with Deuteronomy, which suggests stoning your child if he strays from the faith, unquote. The comment itself reveals a profound lack of understanding of both the scripture and the meaning of the scripture. First of all, the Bible doesn't promote slavery, what the Bible does is it insists on integrity, on the payment of debts. And so in the grand scheme of things, which is worse, unfunded debt or a willingness to pay back your debt? Which is worse, incorrigible Children who are committed to hurting their parents and hurting their brothers and sisters and hurting each other or doing something about it. Indeed, Mr. President, which passages of the scripture should guide our public policy? Because what the president intimates is that some things in the Bible are ridiculous, absurd, impossible. And before you're too hard on the president, I'm going to suggest to you just for a moment to ask yourself a different question, and that is, do you find some things in the Bible ridiculous, absurd, impossible? Years ago, another president was followed by a group of media people to church on Sunday. And after the fiery message, the president was asked what the sermon was about. His single word answer, Teddy Roosevelt said, Sin. The reporters asked him, Mr. President, how does God feel about sin? The president said, He's against it. (laughs) Then they asked the president, How do you feel about sin? And Roosevelt said, I'm against it too. (laughs) Think about what's being said. Jesus is providing a radical insight. Jesus is against sin. Jesus is for humility in your heart. Jesus is for purity in your speech. Jesus is for generosity amongst yourselves. Jesus is for integrity. Jesus is for honesty. And so Jesus is going to link the ideas of truth and justice and how we treat people. Do you treat them on the basis of how they treat you? A little bit later on, Jesus is going to give the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. However, however, we're not to treat others based on how they treat us. We are called to something even more radical than that. We're not to treat them based on how we feel about them. We're to treat them according to the law of love. We do not have to live our lives based on whether people respect us or treat us with dignity. We can rise above our feelings and live our lives based on the word of God and the character of Christ. But some people won't do that under any circumstance because now they begin to understand the demands of citizenship in this new kingdom. And they want to incorporate all of the benefits of being a citizen of the kingdom, but they don't want any of the responsibilities Because the truth, the truth, the truth, you will not be able to practice purity, humility, and generosity on your own. It's going to require something supernatural. Something way beyond your resources. And so Jesus talks about the law of retribution. Look again in verse 38. It says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. For those of you who watched the Super Bowl there was one particular commercial where this tattooed guy comes up and he 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 his nose is apparently broken it's a it's a parody a comedy if you will he takes his axe he buries it into the coffee table because someone hurt him and he goes "eye for eye and tooth for tooth." That's what you always said, dad. We find that law in the ridiculous book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Exodus. I'm saying that tongue in cheek. They're not ridiculous. Leviticus 24:19. Exodus 21, 24, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Leviticus 24:2, breach for breach. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he hath caused a blemish in a man, so shall it be done to him again. Deuteronomy 19.21. And thine eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Once again, people misinterpreted the law some saw this law as a biblical justification for retribution the law wasn't given to insist on retribution but rather to limit retribution For some of you, you might be thinking, you mean if someone accidentally pokes someone's eye out, you have to get your eye poking out? If there's an accident or an injury and you lose a limb, then you must of necessity lose a limb. That's actually not what it's saying. It isn't requiring or insisting. It's providing a measure of justice because you have to understand the ancient world wasn't all that different from your world. In the Sicilian world in which I grew up in, my father didn't say eye for eye and tooth for tooth. My father said, you poke me in the eye, I'm going to poke both of your eyes. <laughs> you knock out one of my teeth, I'm going to knock out every single tooth in your head. You hurt my family, I hurt everyone in your family and, their, and your next door neighbor's family. You see, the point wasn't to promote revenge and retaliation. The point was that you had to limit the revenge and the retaliation. The law allowed a measure of justice for the victim. But he didn't have to insist on it. The law was given as a guide to the judges in the execution of justice. It wasn't given to individuals to take vengeance on others. The law could sometimes be satisfied with goods or services or money or valuables or property or ransom. There was one exception. There was one exception. In the case of murder, the murderer had to pay with his or her life in numbers 3531 blood for blood life for life why was the law given to limit revenge why was the law given to restrain and to deter why was the law given to limit the penalties, and to ensure that the punishment fit the crime. I have a friend who owned a a, a McDonald's in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And someone came to to McDonald's, as as millions of people all across America do. She bought a cup of coffee. She put the coffee in her lap. She left the lid a little bit open. The coffee spilled on her lap, and she sued him for a million dollars. And one. And one. I know what you're, many of you are thinking. I'm going to go to McDonald's. <laughs> but again you're misunderstanding the point of the illustration. The punishment is supposed to fit the crime. My friend Franklin Graham told me a story that when he was a younger man. People would stalk his family. And they would do weird things, and one day a weirdo showed up on their doorstep. And Billy Graham, at that time, about six foot three, a fairly big man, he hit this guy in the nose, and he broke his nose, and the guy's lying in the dirt. And Billy Graham said, you know that God loves you, and Jesus loves you. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for for your life, but if you ever threaten my family again, I'm going to kill you. Part of the point of the passage is to understand the meaning and look what Jesus says in verse 39. It says, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek to him also. And some of you, again, who think that the Bible is ridiculous impossible, that whatever Jesus is asking you to do, it can't be done. Let me help you think it through. The Bible teaches that we're to resist the devil. The Bible teaches that we're to resist evil. Jesus himself resisted the devil and resisted evil. Jesus drove the money changers from the temple. Jesus resisted the high priest in John chapter 18 verses 22 and 23. Paul the apostle resisted evil in Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 23, Acts chapter 25. So how are we to think about what we're reading? But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. What does this mean? Some of you might be reading that and you think, well, does this mean I'm supposed to let people hurt me? Does this mean that I'm supposed to let people abuse me? I don't think that this is what the passage is saying at all. I think what the passage is saying is, do not seek evil for evil. Do not bear ill will." Do not retain a grudge. Do not resent people when you are mistreated or when you are persecuted because Jesus has already informed you that mistreatment and persecution is on its way. Because mistreatment and persecution is on its way. We don't seek revenge. We don't seek the chance to retaliate. We forgive. We help those who hurt us. Why? Because we're citizens of a new kingdom. God's calling us to a radical purity. A radical humility. We aren't supposed to be like people in this world. There's a reason why we reject vengeance. There's a reason why we do not seek to retaliate. The principle applies to citizens in Christ's kingdom. And you might be thinking, I don't want to be a citizen in that kingdom. Well, Jesus invites you to be exactly that. It doesn't apply to the city. It doesn't apply to the state. It it, it doesn't apply to the nation. Now we're back to what the president said earlier. Which scriptures should guide our public policy? And before we answer that question, we have to ask and answer a different question. Which scripture is going to guide your personal life? What instructions are you going to allow to speak to your heart and speak to your circumstances and speak to your life? Citizens of the kingdom may elect to remain neutral or even appeal to some conscientious objection in times of war. It's okay for you to do that, but not based on this scripture. Here, Jesus is speaking about personal insult. He's speaking about personal injury and the reason why he's speaking about personal insult and personal injury because he lived in a broken world just like you. In the United States of America it's a violent place. According to FBI statistics every 17 seconds a violent crime is committed against someone in America. A forcible rape, child sexual assault, Murder, aggravated assault, robbery, theft, larceny, burglary. Why do I even bring this up? Because behind every crime statistic is a real criminal and a real victim. Some criminals believe that the world owes them something, that you owe them something. They believe that you deserve to be victimized and that your property should be stolen and if you stand in their way, you deserve to be hurt and you deserve to be killed with so much crime and with so much hate and with so much wickedness. It's fairly easy to be tempted to take the law into your own hands, to seek a little bit of personal justice. We sometimes experience overwhelming feelings to avenge ourselves or to alleviate the suffering that's been perpetrated on ourselves or on people that we love. Here's what you must understand. Jesus is not suggesting that the laws be abolished or justice not be served. Jesus is addressing the very real issue of my heart and your heart and what you will do when you experience injury. When someone slaps you, it's personal. Jesus, in effect, is saying, you don't have the right to personal retaliation when you're wrong. Jesus is not saying that you have no right to defend yourself. If someone goes to take a swing at you, duck. It's okay. And if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other cheek. But thank God that God only gave us two cheeks. Because once those cheeks are up, it's on. Jesus is not suggesting that you not stand against evil. We're to resist the devil, James 4, 7, and all the evil that he stands for and all the evil that he inspires. We're to resist evil in the church. Paul opposed Peter to his face for his hypocrisy in Galatians chapter 2, 11. When Paul got wind of sexual immorality in the church, Paul wrote, remove the wicked from among you in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13. Well, what do we do about evil in the government? What if the government becomes the instrument of Satan and the instrument of evil and the instrument of oppression and the instrument of persecution? What do you do when Jewish people or Christian people are actually, literally persecuted and suffer by their government? What do we do? Paul wrote that government's role in Romans chapter 13 verse 4 is a minister of God for your good. It says, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. The government's role? To promote good. The government's role? To resist evil. What do we do when a government promotes evil? Evil and resists good. I'm going to suggest to you that we have to do what everyone has done in every single age and every single generation. We have to resist those who promote wickedness and evil. We have to resist them. And we have to constantly say, this is good. Don't you understand the difference between good and evil? Don't you understand the difference between right and wrong? How about that as a scripture for public policy? Or how about Peter's admonition in 1 Peter 2, verse 13? Therefore, submit yourselves... To every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. There is a radical purity and a radical humility. Citizens of God's kingdom aren't lawbreakers. We keep the law. We urge others to keep the law. If someone is caught molesting children in our church, we will report you. If someone is stealing church property, we will report it to the police. Jesus said that I should turn my cheek, but I won't turn your cheek. It's not a kindness. And it's not love. To hide people's crimes. Husbands, if you hit your wife. I'll be the first to call the police. Have you put in jail. I'll come and visit you in jail. I'll even pray with you in jail. But you're going to jail. I'm not to resist someone who's harming me personally. Well, I am... To resist. I'm not to resist someone who's harming me personally, but I will resist someone who harms you. Jesus is condemning taking the law into your own hands. Jesus is not condemning law enforcement. Again, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verse 7 Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. One translation says, make room for wrath. It's an idiomatic expression which says, in your discussion, make sure that you believe in judgment. You see, there are people who don't believe in judgment. There are people who say, guess what? If people do what's wrong, they should never be punished. They should never have to... Pay the consequences. But that's not what the Bible says. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. And when Jesus says, "Vengeance," or Paul writes, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And he's quoting the Old Testament. For Christians, personal revenge is not an option. We're called to overcome evil by doing good. Well, what if someone hates me? What if someone hurts me? What if someone slights me? Welcome to the world. You live in a broken world where people will hurt you, where people will hate you, where people will slight you. And you might think, well, look, I'm not going to give up my rights. I'm not going to surrender my rights. I'm not going to renounce my rights. I have a right to fight. You also have a right not to fight. Jesus isn't suggesting that humans have no basic rights. Jesus is simply saying that non-retaliation is better than retaliation. We have basic human rights, but Jesus is going to challenge our rights of dignity and security and liberty and prosperity. In what way? In what way? Is the Bible for dignity? Of course it is. Is it for security? Of course it is. Is it for liberty? Of course it is. If it's for prosperity, of course it is. But here's what Jesus is basically saying, that love trumps dignity and security and liberty and prosperity, that sometimes if you have to choose between liberty and security and dignity, Jesus invites you as citizens of the kingdom to choose him. What do I mean? Look at dignity at the end of verse 39. Turn the other cheek. Under the the law and the old economy, some forms of retaliation and revenge were permissible. But now Jesus gives us the right to turn our cheek. That means exercise non-resistance. According to the Bible, human beings have the right to be treated with dignity and respect. Do you want to know why? Because according to the Bible, you're made in the image of God. Which scriptures are going to guide our public policy. The scripture that says human beings are valuable. What about the person who says, you just made that up? People really aren't valuable. On what basis could you make such a claim? People aren't valuable because you say so, or even because I say so. You might say that people are valuable, but guess what? You might change your mind. But the Bible says, I'm the Lord, I don't change. My mother taught me that there's never a good reason, never a good reason to be rude. And she was right. But just simply because she told me there's never a good reason to be rude, was that enough to keep me from not being rude? God also expects us to treat others with dignity, but God knows that we live in a fallen world, and God knows that there are people who will hate you and who will despise you and who will insult you. And they think that they're doing it for a very good reason. That might come as a shock to you. Saul of Tarsus, when he stood at the very edge of the place where they were going to stone Stephen. And they heaped coats in front of him. And they threw rocks at him. And they killed him. Saul of Tarsus went out and he found Christians. And he persecuted them and sometimes he tortured them and he would often incarcerate them and sometimes he willingly participated in the execution of Christians and he thought that he was doing God a favor. Sometimes the insults seem disconnected from reason. Jesus isn't simply concerned with the insult. And see, this is part of the point that you have to understand in the passage. Jesus isn't simply interested in the fact that you've been slapped in the face. Jesus is interested in how you are going to respond to that slap in the face. Why? Because you've been changed. Because you are different. To the Jew, a slap in the face was the height of contempt. To the Italian, a slap in the face is the root word for vendetta. I'm just kidding. It's really not the root word for vendetta. You slap an Italian person in the face, it's on. You know, again, part of this is a cultural thing. When I went to India, in India, everyone honks. They honk if you go to the left. They honk if you go to the right. In India, they honk. They honk to communicate. They honk to let you know where you are and where they are. Everyone honks. In Texas, you honk, and it's an invitation to a gunfight. (laughs) You have to understand where you are and what the cultural sensibilities are. In the New Testament... Paul was brought before the Sanhedrin. He was brought before the high priest. And the high priest ordered Paul slapped. And do you remember what Paul's response is? What have I done, you whitewashed sepulcher? And the guard standing by says, you should be careful how you address the high priest. And Paul's immediate response was, I didn't know it was the high priest. Punching may be painful, but slapping was the height of disrespect. It may be impossible for you to understand in the ancient world of first century Rome. But do you realize that a slave would rather be whipped on his or her back than slapped on her face? Do you want to know why? Because being whipped on the back was just physically painful. Being slapped in the face was mentally painful and emotionally disarming. When someone lies about you, when someone insults you, when someone demeans you, when someone humiliates you, we're told to turn the other cheek. Wait a minute. No one has the right to treat me with disrespect. Exactly. They have no right. People will demean and humiliate. But you have the right to be different. You have the right to be better. You have the right to turn the other cheek. And you know what happens by turning the other cheek? You have to stay and not run away. You know, people in the world, the easiest thing for them to do is to stomp away And never come back. But you don't have to do that. Warren Wearsby says in order to turn the other cheek, we have to stay where we are. This demands both faith and love. It also means that we'll be hurt, but it's better to be hurt on the outside than harmed on the inside. But it further means that we should help the sinner. In what way? What is he saying? We help the sinner. We are vulnerable because he may attack us anew, but we're also victorious because Jesus is on our side, helping us and building our character. Can you imagine slapping Jesus' face and he looks at you and he turns the other cheek? Is that going to have an effect on you? Is someone at some point going to ask the question, wait a minute, why are you different? Is it incredible when someone says violence is for the weak? Violence is for those who don't have the courage to suffer, not for the sake of pain, but for the sake of Christ. You see, you live in a world where violence is for the strong. But in the citizens of the kingdom of God, violence is for the weak. And you might still be saying, I'm not willing to take the loss. I'm not willing to suffer. Let me ask you a question. Your reading of the New Testament, your reading of the life of Christ, does Jesus take the loss, yes or no? That's yes. Does Jesus suffer? Yes. Jesus takes the loss, and Jesus suffers. Why? Because you're way more important to him than he is to himself. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. Peter writes, For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But what when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently? This is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. But what did Jesus do when they came to the garden and they came to arrest him? A legion of soldiers shows up and Jesus says, you're looking for me. Let these people go. And you'll remember, they marched forward, and Jesus spoke, and everyone fell flat on their back. He wiped all of them out. And he goes, let me just make myself clear here. These people get to go, and I'll go with you. When people misrepresented his father's house, he drove them out. When his disciples were threatened, he became a force to be reckoned with. But when Jesus hung from the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. John MacArthur writes, quote, when someone attacks our right to dignity, we're not to defend that right by retaliation. We are to leave the protection and defense of our dignity in God's hands knowing that one day we will live and reign with him in his kingdom in great glory. You see, for the person who says, if I don't defend my dignity, who will? The Bible says, Jesus will defend your dignity. What about security? Verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Jesus is going to use an illustration from the law. Most people in the ancient world of Israel were very poor. They were dirt poor. They had two articles of clothing. They had what was called an inner garment and they had an outer garment. The inner garment was almost like a little poncho where it was almost like a little sheet that you would put a hole in it and you would sew around it and it would cover your body on the inside and then there was a cloak on the outside. The court could require a person to surrender their tunic, that's the undergarment, but could not compel a person to surrender their cloak, that's the outer garment. But it could voluntarily be surrendered as payment. So what is Jesus saying? If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, Jesus is basically saying, we should be willing to give up what we can legally keep in order to pay or satisfy a legitimate debt. Again, Jesus isn't talking about that if someone wrongfully accuses you that you can't resist the wrongful accusation. That's not what this passage is saying. What the passage is saying is, do you really, legitimately, for real, owe someone something? Did you borrow something and not pay it back? Have you used the excuse, I can't really afford to pay him back? Has anyone taken you to court and required repayment of a legitimate debt? The point that Jesus is making is that if you go to court and a judgment has been made against you, pay even more. What? What? That sounds like crazy talk. You owe them a dollar. Pay them two dollars. You owe them a hundred dollars. Pay them two hundred dollars. Jesus says pay more. Why? Why is Jesus saying that? Jesus is saying that because he wants you and everyone else to understand that you're not bitter and you're not angry and you're not resentful. And you see, this becomes the important point. The most important thing in life isn't your security. It's Christ's integrity. The most important thing is that you're not bitter. You're not angry. You're not resentful. And the real question you should ask is, am I bitter? bitter and am i angry and am i resentful and so that's why paul will later write isn't it better to be defrauded isn't it better that someone took advantage of you than that you be resentful bitter or spiteful and see this is part of the point he someone has horribly and terribly taken advantage of you what are you doing smiling You know, Jesus is the Lord, and I'm the citizen of a different kingdom. And Jesus has called me not to be bitter or resentful or spiteful. And now we see those three words that keep coming up over and over again for citizens in this new kingdom. Someone's going to be hurt. And it's either going to be me or it's going to be you. Jesus invites the citizens of heaven to take the loss. What about liberty? Look at verse 41. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Jesus will draw an illustration from the world of politics. When it says, and whoever compels you, that's the key word, compel. Compel is a word that meant to press into service. In the ancient world, there were public cur- couriers who could command or compel subjects to bear a burden. We see it in our own culture. You've probably seen a movie where a person goes, FBI, and they take your car. I've got to take this. This is a matter of national security. I've got to confiscate your property or take this or restrict your liberty because this is a matter of national security. In the ancient world, the way that that was done is a Roman soldier would come to you. And some of you may have seen pictures of Roman soldiers. They have their little helmet, they have their little sword, they have their armor. Some of you have seen that they have a spear, and at the top of the spear there's a gigantic piece of iron that was the spearhead, and it weighed about 3 pounds and it was flattened into the form of a leaf and it was sharp on either side. And when a Roman soldier would come and they would place that spear on your shoulder you were compelled See, you're laughing because you know you can imagine seeing a roman soldier place his spear on top of your shoulder and pressing it you're pressed into service how many people could decline say no thanks you couldn't you couldn't say no thanks By the way, if you're living in a government that can compel its citizens to do stuff, can the government abuse the privilege? Everybody agrees, yes, they can. They can abuse the privilege. So imagine you live in a world, and imagine you live in a government where the government abuses the privilege. And whoever compels you to go one mile... Go with him too. Imagine you're walking with the Roman soldier and the courier. You've been compelled to disservice. The law requires that you walk a mile. But you look up and you say, I'm going to go one more mile with you. What's the Roman soldier's response going to be? Who are you? Who are you? And why would you do such a thing? Well, you know, I know that I'm citizens here on this planet and, and this circumstance. But Jesus, my Lord Jesus, has called me to a radical purity and a radical humility. My Lord Jesus, who is my real king, has asked me to take a few more steps with you. What happens? What happens? The Roman government could be cruel and unfair, just like sometimes you find yourselves in cruel and unfair circumstances. God made people to live in freedom, and you might be thinking, are you telling me that God doesn't love freedom? No, I think God does love freedom. I'm for freedom. Our government and other governments will sometimes give lip service to freedom, but sometimes they will ask the citizen to bear a burden burden. So what in the world are you saying, Jesus? The Lord Jesus issues a constant call throughout his ministry to self-sacrifice. The life that God calls us to live has to be lived in the power of the Spirit. Jesus says, answer insult, verse 39. Injustice, verse 40. Inconvenience, verse 41. With love in verse 39, with love in verse 40, with love in verse 41. This is why the gospel that you believe has sometimes been called the gospel of the second mile. And look at the law of generosity, verse 32. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, don't turn away. And you're reading it and you're going, I can't believe what I'm reading. What in the world... Is Jesus asking me to give to him who asks me? Have you ever been in a restaurant and you're with a group of people and you just say to the waitress, give the bill to the person who looks like they have the ability to pay? (laughs) See, you're laughing because that's not how real life works. By the way, Jesus doesn't command us to give what they want most, but what they need most. So what is Jesus saying? Christians are givers and not takers. We help those in need. The picture's fairly simple. When someone needs help, help. But the Bible isn't suggesting help absent wisdom or absent discernment or absent discretion. You know why we know that? Because Psalm 112 verse 5 says, A good man shows favor and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Discretion means you use common sense and wisdom. What does this mean? We give, but we don't give to encourage laziness or idleness or license. We're motivated by love and compassion. We give to the needy, but we also exercise discernment. Does this mean that you give to anyone, even if it might harm them? Let me use you kind of a simple example. Imagine your four-year-old or your five-year-old says, you know what? I, I want a Glock. I want a loaded gun. By the way, what stupid person in their right mind would give a child a gun? Well, And, and the child quotes, if it... Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow, turn from you not. It's in the Bible, you have to give it to me. And you're thinking, it is in the Bible. But thank God the Bible isn't as stupid and undiscerning as some people who read the Bible. The Bible isn't asking you to do something wicked. The the Bible isn't asking you to promote evil. The Bible isn't asking you to... promote laziness. We give, but we give in such a way that the person who receives what we're giving will trust the Lord. We give knowing that we're stewards of the resources that God has entrusted to us. We give not to satisfy a greed or a wickedness or a sin. Hey, could you give me some money to buy some drugs? No. But here in in Matthew chapter 5, it says, give to him who asks you it doesn't say give to him who asks you if he's asking for beer or for drugs. And here's what you can say. Thank God that the Bible goes from Genesis to the book of Revelation. And guess what? We get to read this in context. If a psychotic killer goes, please give me a knife. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you. Do not turn away. And you go, psychotic killer. Asking for a knife, quoting Matthew chapter 5, verse 42. Hmm. The answer is no. Part of the point of this passage is when faced with the decision to suffer or cause suffering, to harm or be harmed, Jesus is inviting you to take the loss. George Mueller wrote, There was a day when I died utterly to George Mueller and his opinions, his preferences, his tastes, his will. I died to the world. I died to its approval and censure. I died to the approval or the blame of even my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. Abraham decided to give the best lot plan to Lot. Joseph decided to kiss and forgive his brothers. David refused to take Saul's life. Elisha fed the enemy armies of Assyria. Stephen prayed for his killers even when they were killing him. And it did have an effect. It had a profound effect. It had a life-changing effect on a Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus. And it began to eat at him how could this person do what this person did? You see, the truth is, you as the citizen in heaven have the right to embrace a radical purity, a radical humility, and a radical generosity. That's supposed to prompt the question. Who are you? And why are you doing this? Who are you? Why is it that you do what you do? Jesus is inviting you on an adventure. Of transformation. Are you beginning to see it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom, that, Lord, we could read the Bible in its context with discernment. And, Lord, when we hear people say that the Bible is ridiculous and absurd, when people invite us to think that it's impossible, Lord, we We pray that we would come to the realization that apart from God and apart from Christ and apart from the power of his Holy Spirit, this kind of purity and this kind of humility and this kind of generosity isn't possible unless we have a right relationship with God and Christ, unless we're willing to walk with Jesus, unless we're willing to humble ourselves, unless we're willing to embrace what Jesus has for us, unless we're really willing to be like Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make us like you, Lord. And again, Father, we know that it isn't just the outside that you care about, it's the inside. And so once again, Lord, we... Look to you, the author and the finisher of our faith. We look to you to be able to change us. Because, Lord, the purity that you call for and the humility that's talked about in the Bible and the generosity that's hinted at, for many of us, Lord, we're far, far away from those standards. But, Lord, we want to walk in humility, transparency, purity, generosity. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.